0: Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss IBM's new 2 nanometer concept and what this could mean for all the future products. We're going to dig into the manufacturing process at a high level which is just a thing of geek and sci fi dreams. You're going to love it. There's freaking lasers and plasma. We're getting all into <laughs> it here. Then we're gonna head to the camera corner where Wendy will discuss lithography. So sit back, relax, and plug in because Hardware Attic starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, a resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what
1: did you do, man? So I did some stuff with my keyboard, and by specifically, I, you know, there's, there's this thing that people say that keyboards are like the kind of like the nastiest things about someone's house. So I went to I decided I'm going to I'm going to clean it today and then found out that is 100% accurate. It was nasty. Uh, it's clean now. So that's good. And you could it, it didn't change the like the feel of it or nothing but uh, it turns out that it it's a it's a collector of ick
0: keyboards, the toilet bowl of computers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: I have a couple tricks that I like to use spray air obviously is amazing but it's expensive you know you Mm -hmm. buy these cans and cans of spray air so I got an electric compressed air duster that Mm. I will have a link to in the show notes you plug this thing in it has a bunch of attachments that make it different sizes so something for keyboard you have a really thin nozzle attachment like you would in the spray air can and then you just turn it on and knock the dust, not only off your desk, off of your CPU fans, of course, hold the fan before you hit it with the direct air so it doesn't spin and destroy the bearings. And also for your keyboards, it's fantastic as well.
2: That sounds like a great idea. But we have sticky dust here in Idaho where it doesn't seem like you can use enough compressed air to get the dust off of it. Plus, I've also (laughs) found that it doesn't remove long lady hairs from the keyboard either. They just get stuck in between the keys. So I've then never you heard go, of
0: sticky dust. Why do you have sticky dust? Where you I live? don't
2: know, but it's everywhere. And I think it's just from the desert environment that I live in. Dust is everywhere. It's all over the place. You can't get away from it. You will clean. You will dust something. And then it's immediately dusty again. That is just the type of environment that I live in here. So it doesn't matter how much compressed air I use. Let me put it this way. We have so much dust that I do not put new screen protectors on until I tell my husband, all right, so you need to take a longer shower so I can use, so the moisture can build up in the bathroom and I can use that moisture to get the dust to go down so I can put a new screen protector on without getting dust under it.
1: That's, wow. That's an interesting uh, environment to have to deal with. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> well, that. Um, best of luck with that. for for people who live on earth
0: (laughs) yeah exactly if you don't live on mars you can use this (laughs) you can use this electric duster it's going to save you a ton of money it's far more powerful than the dust cans and because you know those those spray air cans they also run out of pressure so the initial spray is great and then the longer you hold it of course you can end up freezing something which can also ruin components by the way Mm. and in different stuff like that so Mm. it's it's just a much better solution it's going to push the air harder and you're going to knock out a lot of stuff also the rocat keyboard the vulcan that i have is really interesting in that the keys are raised above the frame enough that any hairs or anything you could actually there's enough space in between the keys you could just pull it right out whereas a lot of keyboards are really tight and confined together and they're not raised up out of the frame and because of that Lots of gunk and stuff gets stuck in there, especially if you're eating Doritos or Fritos mm-hmm. or Cheetos, Michael, <laughs> Or you typing on your keyboard. Yeah, any kind yeah.
1: of Edo if you want. Yeah.
0: Any sure. type of Edo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for
1: sure. Oh, it's kind of funny because you mentioned that. I, I didn't even notice that until I cleaned it today, but this keyboard I have has raised keys, except there's this weird ledge on the top and bottom of the keyboard, which puts it in like in an insert. So it's raised and then also still annoying to get to like th- That's that's an interesting mm-hmm. design that I not I, I've realized today I do not like. Uh, and I was actually kind of interested if like if is there any kind of keyboard that actually makes it simple to clean like that should be a thing that they put on like the box like easy to clean.
0: Especially people when they tell me they're like I buy used keyboards all the time. I'm like, yeah, man, that's <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's like buying a used toothbrush sometimes I feel like you- <laughs> You could, but should you? Uh, yeah, maybe not. So, Wendy, what have you been up to?
2: Well, I seem to have gone all in on the surface devices. If you listen to the episode of Deal and Extend that just dropped, you've heard me talking about this. I have now my favorite pawn shop. And this is one of the few places I found that even though the rest of technology has gone crazy in price, They've actually kept their stuff really close to true value instead of the crazy market value right now. We have two surface devices that we use on a regular basis. My husband has claimed a surface book that he's now taking with him wherever he's traveling. He's using it in the living room back and forth, which has been really nice for me and definitely given me more time to do stuff on the computer when I need it instead of him like, are you done yet? He just goes and takes his laptop out there. That's pretty easy to use. And then I've been packing a Surface Pro 6 around with me and been absolutely loving the device. Though I'm not a huge fan of Windows and Microsoft themselves. Hardware-wise, these have been really solid devices. When I was in there last time, I saw a used Surface Pro 3 for an amazing deal and I was already on the lookout for a laptop for a gift and this is going to be the perfect gift for the person that I want to give it to. Right now it's running elementary. I haven't played with it too much after I put elementary on but the advantage of elementary was a it's easy to use. You're able to navigate the app store really nicely. They have a pretty app store and it's nice to find the type of app you're looking for. And it worked with touchscreen right out of the box. So there, yes, which is crazy cool. On most other Linux OSs I've put on there, you've had to install the custom kernel to use with it. But elementary was super slick. It's got touchscreen stuff on it and I haven't had to mess with any custom kernels.
1: So, uh, Mr. Hardware, what have you done this week with the uh, potential uh, topics that you that might pertain to this show?
0: Well, guess what? I fell so in love with the HP Omen that I've talked about that I bought another one. Wow. My son has recently got into PC gaming, like this week, literally as we're talking, his first <laughs> two days into full-on PC gaming, like where he doesn't want to touch the PlayStation Wants to be on PC, and I love this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he gets to learn all of the keys on the keyboard, typing, launching programs, all of those type of things. And two, one of the issues as he's gotten better in various games is that console players, when you have this cross compatibility in gaming where you're cross platform, what happens is the console gamers just get stomped Mm -hmm. because while with aim assist and everything else it helps. When somebody has a mouse, it's just so much faster to flick your wrist and do a complete 360 or turn or have multiple keys for different variations and things. So he was getting to the level at eight years old where he was competing and winning a lot of these games that he was playing against other people online. However, he was constantly also getting destroyed if that person online, some of these games will actually tell you if you're playing against a console player, or a PC player. He was getting stomped at the person who was a PC player because they could just move so much quicker. So now that he's moved to PC, It first of all, it only took him like maybe four hours to completely adapt. I expected it to take way more time for him to get used to playing these same games with the mouse and keyboard. And number two, I think there's also skills there that they can use in the future of learning the keyboard better, right? Knowing, memorizing where the keys are, at least on the left half. Might not be able to type anything on the right half of the keyboard, but on the left half, He's got that down pat with W A S <laughs> D Z X E all of that stuff. So um, I ordered another one so that he would leave mine alone. My Omen alone. <laughs> and so we have another one coming in. And I just I think the Omen's probably one of my favorite laptops. It can game and it runs Linux like a dream. I just and it's fully repairable. And of course it's HP, so it's got a great supply chain. If you're looking for a good laptop that can game or do video rendering or the high-end stuff. I'm just in love with this line.
1: That is a very strong statement to be like, you know, I really like it. So I got another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not, that's, that's, really good. Also the, the hand eye coordination of PC gaming is, is an interesting thing that he's going to learn, you know, that's going to be a very valuable thing in the future. Uh, and just in general, really, but it's kind of funny when you said the four hour transition, uh, and <laughs> made me go, yeah, that, that took me, I'm still working on it. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: know. Right. Kids are so much more adaptable, which is why you really want to start them out young. Because what I thought would take, I'm like, now you're going to get frustrated. This is going to take you a week to be good at. And he's over there stomping people, and <laughs> a few hours later, and I'm like, wow, okay, that's good. never mind. Yeah. Kid, kids can learn stuff really fast, and I think a lot of times we underestimate them. So, for sure. um, but I think PC gaming for a kid, if you if you can get a good PC gaming machine for a good price out there and of course nobody can get gpu so laptops like i would love to build him a machine but who can get any parts right now so the right. laptops with the stuff inside that's the best option at the moment to get them rolling
1: nice
2: so you're saying part of my problem is i didn't start playing games video games until i was in my 30s so i'll never be good
0: i didn't want to say anything wendy <laughs> but-,
2: <laughs> but it's true
1: it is true. I mean, it's kind, <laughs> but you, it's kind of true. You can you even even if you start late on certain games, you can build up skill. It'll take forever, but it's possible. I did it for one game, and then every other game that Ryan and I play, it's very bad. Like, <laughs> anytime we play a first-person shooter, it's it's basically like we're competing and who's the worst. This episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean announced the App Platform service, and you need to check it out because it is a really cool solution to build modern cloud-native apps. So with the App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites super easy and very quickly. Simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the App Platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles high scalability and zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply just point your GitHub or GitLab repository to it and it will handle the infrastructures like the app runtimes, the dependencies and all that sort of stuff, including your SSL certificates. It will automatically create them and manage them and renew them as well as help you with DDoS attacks. All of this so you can push code to your production in just a few clicks. And also, you can do so with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the, the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to dln. Again, if you want some free credit, free money on DigitalOcean, you can go to do. .co/dln, and you get started on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Hardware Addicts.
0: All right, so IBM develops 2 nanometer. Now, we were all excited on this show when AMD Ryzen came out with 7 nanometer. But that, my friends, is yesterday. <laughs> 5 nanometer, that's for hipsters. 2 nanometer, that's the new future out there. And I was so excited about this announcement. And it's interesting to think that this innovation wasn't announced by AMD or Intel or NVIDIA or Apple, but IBM. Now, IBM was the maker of my favorite processor. For those who watch the Destination Linux podcast, where we have video in the background. There's a little frame of different processors that I've held on to. And one of those is the Blue Lightning. It's they manufactured... This desktop, seventy-five megahertz CPU that I absolutely loved. It was my first machine that I built. And IBM is the company that unveiled this two-nanometer proof-of-concept chip that packs more than fifty billion transistors into a package the size of a fingernail.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. Although, like, it's it's really interesting because they've been doing these kinds of research things for years and uh, it's really interesting that they were the ones to, to to get to this point and by the way you said five nanometers for hipsters so i'm going to go back to the fi- i'm just going to stick with the five nanometers because i'm a hipster and that's just that's how i'm going to go with it. <laughs> no matter what yeah, happens, no matter what high. five yeah. nanometer uh and that's but, how
2: hipsters roll <laughs> yeah exactly yeah.
1: exactly that's it's it's the you know when it gets mainstream i don't want it anymore but uh, the size of the fingernail made me laugh when I saw that because it's like, what? Which fingernail? We talking about the pinky, the index finger? Which one? Does it matter? Thumb. Probably not.
0: And whose uh, thumb? Well, and what? You know, because you have giant thumbs. Yeah, people with exactly. giant thumbs, small thumbs.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And we need my to,
2: six-year-old's <laughs> thumb is way smaller than mine. <laughs>
1: right. We need to have them verify what kind of fingernail they're referring to.
0: Well, I think it's just kind of an idea of how small this package is and how much they've packed in there, right? Putting 50 billion of something on anything is quite an accomplishment. Um, For comparison, AMD's Zen 2 had 3.8 billion transistors and the Zen 3 had around 4.15 billion transistors on there. You made a good point, though, Michael, that IBM is a research partner. So they have partnerships with a bunch of different manufacturers like samsung and intel they do the research for them they create the patent and then they let the manufacturers kind of go do their work so ibm's behind a lot of these gains in things like seven nanometer etc their research was critical into these technologies coming around but i love seeing that ibm got kind of the full credit here in a lot of the news stories because that research if it didn't exist we wouldn't be producing this stuff in a lot of cases. So it's, it's awesome. I wish IBM would still create CPUs and send them out there into the world because I loved it when they did, but this is the second best thing. <laughs> so to put this in a timeline of what's to come, you have TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, and Samsung are expected to release three nanometer chips in 2022. So just because this proof of concept is out there doesn't mean we're going to see it tomorrow in a new CPU that's unveiled. Disappointed. (laughs) I know, right? We we won't get any big announcements from Intel or anybody anytime soon with them. But IBM, the 2 nanometer their partnership, I'm hearing rumors is with Samsung specifically right now, somewhere around 2024. We might see it maybe in a phone or somewhere else. So it's a little ways off. But again, the fact that they're already working on the future like that, when we've just kind of settled on the awesomeness that is seven nanometer yeah. and Intel still catching catching up on that, I think is awesome that we're already down to two nanometer.
1: Yeah, that is that's pretty awesome. Like the I remember like last year we were t- we were t- uh, gushing over the seven nanometer and that's just uh, like in comparison, it's ridiculously like it just makes the seven nanometer seem so bloated and that sort of stuff. It's just pretty, it's yeah. pretty awesome. Uh but uh you know, Intel will eventually get to 10, right? Someday.
0: Yeah, they've got they've got some 10 out there and I think Intel's gonna do great. I don't wanna I don't wanna bash on Intel, but come on, Intel catch. Intel up. well,
2: so one of the things when I was doing my research on some of this, that when it comes to this kind of technology that they're using to create these kind of chips, one of the things that I read is each company had said, okay, this is where we want to be with this technology, and that supposedly Intel has set their sights really, really high, so teeny, teeny, tiny, but now looking at this with IBM and two nanometer, how small exactly was Intel planning to go as their first chip?
0: It's interesting. I know on Intel, I'd have to go back and look, but I believe Intel had a graph of their kind of lifeline of what they were hoping to accomplish and we know they missed a lot of that kind of a product cycle and I thought two nanometer was their ultimate goal that they were trying to hit and, and you're absolutely right a lot of times they'll come to these manufacturers and say here here's the goal that we want to hit and they work on that and if you set something at two nanometer and we haven't even gotten to seven yet AMD comes in sweeps up seven Samsung comes in sweeps up seven and five and and Intel's like, we're still waiting on R2. You know, it's going to take a lot of time to get there. I mean, IBM's gotten there now. And Intel does have a partnership with IBM. So there's a chance Intel could be one of the first to grab this up and use it in a production system. But the two nanometer is really interesting because IBM is claiming that it's going to be 75% more efficient than seven nanometer. 75% wow. more efficient. We know how efficient seven nanometer is. If you have a Ryzen laptop now with the seven nanometer CPU inside of it and the power consumption compared to an Intel comparable Intel processor, there's a difference. It's a substantial difference. And you're talking about now going to two nanometer at a 75% more efficiency. There is pretty interesting. Also 45% more performance, which is pretty awesome.
1: I do hope that Intel's partnership decides to, you know, like, let's just use this because it would give us what we wanted. It's so important because battery
0: technology, you know, it, it goes through its phases, just like CPU technology does. I think we've, we've made some gains in battery technology, but the next gain we don't know when it's going to be. So when you have the ability to create the same amount of speed and efficiency in a processor, but consume far less power, You kind of without having to have that battery change, you're still going to have longer lasting devices, longer lasting phones, longer lasting laptops and things like that, uh, which is, of course, going to be a huge win to the consumer out there. Now, to do this, IBM employed single pass extreme ultraviolet lithography on the front end of this chip, which is called EUV. This is the most fascinating sci-fi geek out thing you can go out there and study. It is
1: so incredibly cool. Is this where the lasers come, the freaking lasers that you said in the intro?
0: There's freaking lasers here, but there's even more than freaking lasers. If you're into Star Trek, you're going to just love all of this stuff I'm going to talk about. Uh, In EUV, a power source converts plasma light at 13.5 nanometer wavelengths. Then that light bounces off several mirrors and hits a wafer and imprints this image in here. Now this is a really big deal considering we experienced a hundred times shrinkage of transistors when EUV came online, which is very recent here. Like this is cutting edge technology because the major products started around 2018, 2020 from what I could find with this technology when it was first used. So this is very fresh. This is very new way of utilizing these wavelengths, utilizing this converting plasma into light here.
2: And to put this more into a perspective, think about the very first chips. They were drawing them on poster size pieces of paper, taking a picture of them and scaling them down to one-to-one and then using that to help print these chips, these transistors. Now we have them teeny tiny already and scaling them down even more. I mean, massive changes in technology over time.
0: That's a really good point and really cool thing to go back and look at the fact that they used to hand draw these and then keep shrinking it down. It's I don't know the difference between how Disney made animation movies in the past and how they make them now using CGI and things. Uh, how it worked, kind of, in the previous generation before EUV, not quite as far back as manually drawing them, is we use something called deep UV with ultraviolet light, and that was at 193 nanometers. Now EUV, remember, 13 nanometers. This is 193 nanometer wavelength, which was focused through a mask or what they call the blueprint through a lens that imprinted them on light-sensitive chemicals to a piece of silicon. That's the really easy, simple explanation. So basically, think like a how a projector works with extreme ultraviolet light using the 13.5 nanometer wavelength. And because of the fact that that 13.5 nanometer wavelength will get absorbed by darn near everything at that size, they have to put this in a vacuum and then have these mirrors do the actual imprinting. But Michael, here's the part you're gonna love. It gets even cooler Mm. because we can't just use freaking lasers, man. Not at this stage. Not with EUV. Yeah, not just we need
1: lasers. What else do we need?
0: Photon torpedoes. Oh. oh I mean
1: plasma. Well, uh, close enough. I'll take it.
0: Yeah, plasma. And to get the plasma, they vaporize 10 particles with a laser, creating laser-pulsed plasma. And this is the light source that imprints this into silicon.
1: That's awesome. I don't even know what most of that means, but that's awesome.
0: Okay, so imagine shooting little tin BBs at a microscopic scale into this vacuum and then this laser shoots it and breaks it apart into basically just dust and the light, the plasma light that's created from that reaction there is the light that's then focused to create an image onto the silicon.
1: Okay, thank you. I get it now. And yes, I was right. It's awesome. It's so freaking awesome.
0: awesome. Like, think about the fact that... When you go and you get a CPU, what does it cost? Five, six hundred dollars, maybe nine hundred ninety nine dollars. It's still cheaper than the cost of a stupid designer purse that somebody goes out and buy (laughs) made from in a sweat factory out of cowhide that the one at Target was made the same way. It costs it costs less than that. right? Louis Vuitton or whatever stupid name brand people go out there and think about what goes into making that CPU that you have sitting in your computer right now. Freaking awesome. Yeah,
1: this is very Gucci. Wow.
2: <laughs> I think I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs>
0: yeah. The, the fact that you knew that is, is amazing. But it, It's funny because, you know, uh, my wife sometimes likes to have some designer stuff. And when I see the price tag of the stuff, I always compare it to something technology-wise. I'm like, do you realize you have to have a level 10 factory to produce some of the components that I put into my computer with thousands of people and these amazing lasers and plasma and everything else and it costs the same amount as a stupid purse that's made of leather this this doesn't make sense it doesn't add up whatever value is wrong and this this technology though is just so incredible to me
1: so it, it blew my mind this just to even see that they were making this in the first place because having the five nanometers I that's that was far off I, I I expected that to happen in a few years or whatever and I expected this two nanometer thing to happen eventually but maybe a decade or two not as like there it was only a few years away but they said like 2024 and that's not very far away from considering how like massively like astronomically uh, complicated this would be to do and with like uh, Moore's law saying that you know, the technology would continuously get better and better on a certain period of time. And it like even doubling. In fact, it, to me, it felt like that was slowing down a bit in terms of, you know, not necessarily CPUs or whatever, but just in technology. It just seems like we were getting to like diminutive returns kind of thing. But to have this come out, I mean, it's just, it's just mind blowing.
0: Two nanometers. Amazing. 50 billion transistors is amazing. I I don't even think our minds can comprehend how, small this is. And the fact that we're able to manufacture this is incredible, but the manufacturing process itself to me is one of the most exciting and awesome things that I've seen be manufactured. I mean, who thought of this? Like they have to come up with ways to keep the dust from, from getting onto the mirrors and things like that, because they're exploding it with these lasers and creating this plasma. And then using this technology course through the masks to get this imprinted onto Silicon. It it's just, it's so sci-fi. Like you could read it in a book and go, Oh, that's a really cool explanation or see it in a star Trek episode and assume that's sometime in yeah. a thousand years from now, where yeah. that would be taking place. Yeah. Like it's that, it cool. does seem but like somebody came fiction. up with this idea.
2: Well, and that's one of the reasons why it is going to be a little bit before it comes to the masses is the mirrors getting dirty is currently a problem because that tin that's being evaporated goes everywhere and then you coat the mirrors, then the process becomes less efficient. So working out some of those details are the slowdown to us having it sooner than later. Now they use
0: EUV today to create some of the chips. So it's not like it's something that's not in production, but you're absolutely right that it does slow it down and it creates inconsistencies. And therefore you kind of have a lottery of chips that you get and where that lottery lands. But it, it's such a cool process. Um IBM's two nanometer chip will also employ a tweaked voltage control, which allows it to scale from low voltage applications like smartphones and consumer electronics to data center applications. I think that was your point, Michael, that this would be used in server world and definitely the amount of power savings oh, capabilities yeah. there and the power increase would be absolutely amazing. We're also going to probably see this technology used in everything from cars and now there's chips in darn near everything. We talked about it last episode that car manufacturing's hit because of the chip shortages and basically televisions and monitors and everything we use today. Refrigerators, all putting chips inside of them. So this technology in this way of manufacturing it will extend well beyond just the CPUs we put in our computers, which is kind of cool to think about in some ways and scary in others uh, and go everywhere, but less hungry chips and awesome research by IBM, who also has been behind amazing research in the past. All in all, I was just super excited to see this and hope that Maybe by 2024, this shortage of all of the CPUs and GPUs and everything else will have gone away so we can actually play with the two nanometer something. Yeah.
1: And then maybe this could be helped with, uh, they could use uh, freaking lasers for their crypto mining.
0: I like it, Michael. <laughs> I hate both of you
2: and your freaking lasers.
1: <laughs> you, you know you like it. Freaking lasers. I don't even know what that's from, but it, it's so iconic. Austin Powers, it's Austin man. Austin
2: Powers. Sh- yeah. How do you with not know that? Laser uh, because. Uh,
1: Give me your geek card. Because it's, 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 it's such it's, a dumb movie. It is a dumb movie. It's, and it's been, it's been movie. 15 years. Sorry. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I know I know the other stuff.
2: When Ryan first mentioned it on whatever show it was, I had no idea what it was from, and my husband was just about dying and laughing. So yeah. he had to bring up that scene on YouTube <laughs> to show me the freaking laser. Magneto,
0: Magneto, <laughs> Magneto gets me.
2: Magneto gets <laughs> me. This episode of Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentications such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to Bitwarden dot com slash dln to get started for free Bitwarden is a password manager that i use and trust because it is 100 open source you can self-host it and they do security audits sharing all of that information with you go to dln to get started for free want to help out this super awesome open source company you can get their premium account for just ten dollars per year what do you get with that one gigabyte of encrypted file storage two step Login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to show some appreciation and sign up with that premium edition, especially since it starts at only just $10 per year. Thanks to Bitwarden for supporting this episode of Hardware Addicts.
0: All right, Wendy, take us into the camera corner. What do you have for us today?
2: Well, all of this talk about lithography has sent me on a deep dive into exactly what it is. And before you had your photograph where you could just take a picture, you needed to have a way to share artwork. And this is one of the ways that it had come up to do. And when researching some of this, it actually reminded me a lot of negatives from a camera. The most old school way to do this type of print is actually with limestone and was first developed in 1796. So you would take this whatever size you need, limestone block, you would draw your picture on typically with a grease pencil, grease pen, something like that, because you're using water and oil. To kind of make this image to make this print block then you'll go ahead and treat it with an acid so that means everywhere where your initial drawing or your artwork or text is won't that acid won't touch it so it makes all of that area more porous and more susceptible for water to get into then you do a cleaning you will re-grease it treat it again with acid clean it again and then you are ready to use this block of stand sandstone for printing which is actually really cool i watched a video of a lady modern day printing this way in germany with some of the original limestone that is quarried from this specific place in germany where the first limestone came from awesome. for this process super cool stuff Modern printing in this way, you can still use it for art or text, even though the printing press became far more easy for mass text. It's still a great way to do art that way. But now they'll still do it with metal or plastic sheets, and you're using the exact same principle water and oil don't mix. So you will etch your art in acid, and then the oil or grease, grease paint, whatever you want to call it, will fill in those gaps and then everything else gets coated with water. So it's just the grease in those specific areas that can be transferred to your image. This process is at its base level so simple. You can make your own at home with just stuff you have lying around the house. Aluminum foil, vinegar, of course, water, and then you'd have to find a way to draw your picture on of some sort. I've seen soap used and it works fantastic. So you don't even need to go out and buy a oil crayon for this. You can do it with soap and create your own at home.
0: We actually have some paintings in my house that are that use lithograph technology to basically take the original artist painting and then reproduce it onto another surface like stone or metal and those type of things. And it's amazing because the amount of details that you get out of that type of print. And also they hold their value a lot more than say, if you just did a standard paper reproduction of an art scene or something like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because of the etching, especially if you're starting with a really good base plate for something like this, That is what gives you the quality in the end to have such crisp, sharp lines, whereas some other forms of reproduction, especially if you're scanning, though we do have some amazing art scanners these days, some of that detail would be lost, where you're not losing that with the high-end lithograph techniques. So of course, you can't start diving into this method of creating art without diving more into how these chips are made and I went down an absolute rabbit hole. It
0: was fun though, with wasn't this it? It's so worth doing your own research.
2: Yes, it yeah. was an absolute blast. Now, this old school stuff is just plain old lithography. This new way is called photolithography, so it's very specific in the fact that it uses light in order to create these different In a way, it's almost an image as it's creating it on your chip. So, what it starts with is a mask. So, in the traditional way of making photolithography, say, take your standard 14 nanometer chip from Intel. The mask or the map that is used to start with is made out of quartz. It needs to be see through because you're passing light through that. In this case, think of your photo negative. Now, these can be used in two different ways, depending on what you put down on your wafer or the part that that light is going to hit, you can use chemicals that make it softer. So as you do the chemical treatment, it washes away those areas, or you can use chemical that when it's hit with those light, it wants to build material on top of it. So those two different ways in which this technique can remove or build up material depending on what you're doing, what you're trying to make, what you're creating. Now the laser will go through that mask that's been made and it usually uses an argon fluoride laser which as Ryan talked about earlier has a wavelength, the UV wavelength of 193 nanometers. Now think about that. You have a CPU That is 7 nanometer technology, but your wavelength in nanometers is so much bigger than the actual chip itself. So that's where we get this extreme ultraviolet lithograph. We're still using ultraviolet light in both of these two cases, but the energy required between the two is so much more. That means our trusty argon fluoride laser is not powerful enough to produce that 13.5 nanometer UV wavelength that we need in order to create these super sharp teeny tiny details. So that's why we need the first laser to melt that 100% elemental tin, and then we shoot that tin with a second laser. It's only 30 microns wide. We shoot this droplet of pure tin with this laser. That's what turns it into plasma, All of that energy for being hit with that laser is then converted into this extremely short wavelength UV light. Absolute crazy sauce. Now, when we're thinking about data and all of this other stuff, your standard map that comes for just your regular old, regular old, 14 nanometer chip. Guess how much information is on just one of those masks. Do you guys have a clue?
1: No idea. One billion. Seventy, 70 quadrillion.
2: Seventy quadrillion what? You're giving me numbers, but you're not telling me like...
1: Wafers. Well, that's because we want
0: you to give us the answer.
2: <laughs> all, right, all right, all right. So just one of those masks contains 14.69 petabytes of data. Petabytes of data. Wow. Now, for your standard 14 millimeter chip, it needs 50 of those mass to make the chip. And why? In using this old school way, which is still really pretty new, of creating these 14 nanometer chips, your wavelength is so large that you're not as fine tuned as you can be with the EVU version of it. So that means with the newer version, with this extreme ultraviolet version, because your wavelength is so much shorter, you're able to make much finer precise cuts in creating these type of things on your wafers. But that also means that it takes a huge amount of power In order to create these things, just crazy the amount of power they have to draw because only 2% of the protons that are created when you hit that tin with the laser are actually converted into hitting that wafer. Photons, photon photon
0: torpedoes. I told you, photon torpedoes came in here.
1: Apparently, it does sound like this is like 100% photon torpedoes. Yes.
0: And this is really interesting because this whole process you're talking about has a lot of application in the CPU world. But as you talked about at the beginning, this also has application in the photography world, in the art world, because lithography is something that's used there at a obviously much different scale and purpose. But the same concept behind being able to replicate something through these masks or in case of a photograph or a painting, the original painting and photograph, and be able to replicate it with extreme detail, the process is there. I mean, different, but the same concept.
2: Exactly. It's one of those things that helps keep maybe certain artworks around much longer. So the original can be stored and kept as clean and precise as it can be because paint and canvas, paper, can really only last so long. So we need technologies like this, which can give us the last ability of these prints, of these artworks, of our images, and at the same time, to keep the originals as long as possible.
0: Absolutely amazing sci-fi stuff that we're living in the generation that's doing it, creating it. And I love how these technologies From a limestone, from photography, from paintings, preservation, all the way through the amazing, when you get into CPUs, lasers, and photons, and plasma, and all of this, all interconnect and have a relationship with each other. It's kind of like when those new products come out and they're like, this technology was created by NASA for your pillow or something like that. You know, that (laughs) one technology gets applied into multiple industries out there to solve similar problems. yeah.
2: Could you imagine storing other data like this, where you can fit so much data on one piece of this? How that technology could be used that way? You could store all the pictures you take in your entire lifetime on a teeny tiny little piece Challenge
0: of silicon. Yep. Accepted. And all I need is some tin to vaporize. <laughs> with right
1: the laser. there, you go. And also be okay with only keeping nine to two percent of this, the data.
2: No. Only 2% of the photons created right, right, right. will help make. Come on, Mike. I, oh, I know. I, keep up. That but means I hate. know. It's, just,
1: it's <laughs> just funny to me. Cause it's like, maybe they're not photon torpedoes then. Maybe like it's a photon shotgun. Because they're, going yeah, they're going everywhere. Yeah, you can't. Can someone kick them yeah, Can off
0: the show? <laughs> Anybody have the power to do that here? No?
2: Uh, no, cause I'm pretty sure both of you run yeah. this network. I veto,
1: so. I veto getting kicked. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed researching this episode and you know, there's obviously a lot more details and information related to this manufacturing podcast. We're giving you the high level that hopefully gets you drooling and thinking about going out there and doing some more research on your own because it's, Easy to go to the store and buy some of these things, but to understand how they're made and how much goes into making them really drives that addiction for hardware for me to understand how awesome some of this stuff is that these scientists and engineers are coming up with. And that's it. Our 36th episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. If you're not all lit up on tech yet, what's wrong with you, first of all? Be sure to check out all the amazing content on Destination Linux Network. Head to DestinationLinux.network because we have so many great podcasts and YouTube partners out there with so much content like this that will
1: fill your brains.
2: Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time for another lithographic episode of Hardware Addicts where we all love freaking lasers.
0: Freaking lasers. No, Wendy? Freaking lasers?
2: Not participating. (laughs)